evidence and answers. Many times today we run into people who say they don't believe in anything. But you think they have to believe in something, right? There are so many differences of opinion. But to not believe in anything? Well, what do you do? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, listen in as Pat interviews British scholar Luke Cowley as they discuss his book entitled The Myth of the Non-Christian. Here's Pat with part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges Christians face today. Well, how do we engage the unbelieving community for Christ? Well, here to help us is a special guest with a great book out called The Myth of the Non-Christian, Luke Cowley. Luke is the director and co-founder of Chrysalis, ministry based in England that helps organizations and churches better communicate the Jesus story. He developed missional communities on university campuses in Britain and Romania, and is a regular speaker at conferences and outreach events around the world. So Luke, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Yes, thank you. It's good to be with you. Yes, Luke, uh, tell us a little bit about your organization here, Chrysalis, and exactly what you do. It's a very uh, important ministry and a very effective ministry there in a tough, tough area of the world. Yeah, thanks. So we, we work um, with um, Christian organizations and churches. Um, help. Really, our interest is in engaging people who wouldn't normally consider Jesus as relevant for their lives, engaging those people in non-church contexts. And we do a lot of that in um, post-communist Europe, um, especially in Romania, where there's kind of been an emerging freedom of religion since the fall of communism 25 years ago. And um, we work with organizations to think through missional strategy, um, especially in universities, and to develop communicators who are capable of, of communicating interestingly, compellingly well about Christ in those um, contexts. Yes, Luke, you state one of the important things is that the unbelieving world is not really interested in hearing about the message of Christ. And you said one right. of the things we've got to do is pique their interest and gain their attention. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's ways to do that, aren't there, which I think in Europe would overlap with the ways you do that in America, especially an easy group to challenge are those who, uh, who assume who assume that Christianity is ridiculous, and um, and if you run events on university campuses which which claim to give thoughtful, credible approach to Christianity, I think that's actually, at least in the European context, quite surprising to people, really. And they come along assuming they'll hear something stupid, and are, are quite surprised to hear that, 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 that there is a good, thoughtful, intelligent case for Christianity. Yes, you know, Luke, for many of us, you know, we were trained in one style of evangelism, whether right. it's just going right to the Roman road or right to the bridge of life or right to the four spiritual laws or those of us in apologetics maybe going, you know, right from worldview to existence of God. One of the things I found very helpful in your book is saying there's not one cookie cutter approach to uh, sharing with the non-Christian world. No, precisely. Um, so, so the book, uh, The Myth of a Non-Christian, you might call it the myth of a generic non-Christian. And, and kind of the starting point for the book is thinking about the idea that people outside the church are a very diverse group. There are those people who I just mentioned are fascinated by debating and questioning intellectually and logically. There are other people who are asking questions like, 
does Christianity enrich my life? Does it offer a path to true spiritual experience? Or there's other people who have bad experiences with the church and who are um, kind of burnt out and negative towards it. So I think we, we need to be attuned to our environment is what good missionaries do in other countries. Sometimes it's something we fail a bit to do in the West and we tend to think of non-Christians as this homogenized group that we need to kind of have a one-size-fits-all strategy to apologetics and evangelism. And actually, we need to, to, to discern who the different groups are and, and develop an array of approaches to reach them. Yes, you know, and when you look in the scriptures, you look at Jesus and the apostles. When they preached, they contextualized their message to the different audiences there. They had a different, a unique approach to the kind of audience they were talking to. And that's what you're promoting here. Yeah, yeah. And I guess what the way that I want to push it a little bit further than that is, I think most of us are aware of the need to contextualize our words. But I think that we I want to push it a little further and say, actually, we need to think about how do we recontextualize the entirety of our evangelistic practice. So there may be things that we can do differently for different groups, not just things we can say different, but things we can do differently with different groups of people. Luke, you state in your book, there needs to be apologetics, but combined with that contextualization of the message. So explain to us, what do you mean by this combination of apologetics and contextualization? Sure. Well, so contextualization or maybe contextual missiology is the discipline of understanding your context and responding to it appropriately. And there's, I mean, it's kind of bread and butter for people who go to do kind of Christian mission overseas. There's also a body of people in the West, I think, who are really thinking, okay, the West has changed a lot the last 20, 30 years. How do we change the way that we do church? How do we change the way that we do every aspect of kind of what it means to be Christian in our culture? And then there's So that's kind of contextualization, is understanding how we shift our approach while remaining true to kind of the Bible. How do we shift it so that it is contextually appropriate for the place where we are? I guess what I tend to see, though, is there's one group of people who are very sensitive to the context and to changing practice and and thinking how we can do church differently and, and rethinking the entirety of kind of evangelism and mission. And there's another group who are very interested in apologetics who who I hugely appreciate and read, read many of their books, but tend to be about developing a set of rigid answers that are like, if you have pocketed these 20 set answers to these 20 popular answers, you have therefore become persuasive to people. And actually, you've only become persuasive to a very narrow group of people if you've done that. But if you can combine that desire to engage people with questions and concerns well, which is part of apologetics, with the desire to understand and respond to the individual context, which is contextualization, if you can combine those two things together and really understand the questions of the people in your context and really respond to them well and adapt your practice to them, well, I think that becomes very powerful. Yes, give us an example of contextualizing your message and the apologetics method. Sure. So, um, so I could give you a couple of examples. One would be, let's take spiritual but not religious people. There's, to be spiritual and not religious, what people mean by spiritual and not religious is either one of two things. They either refer to an upwards spirituality. You might call it, I'm reaching up for God or the universe or, or the gods or some sense of the transcendent. I'm reaching up there. Or there's an outward spirituality when people say they're spiritual but not religious. What they mean when they say they're spiritual isn't I'm reaching up for God or the universe. I'm reaching out to want to make the world around me a better place. 
And most people have either an upward spirituality reaching for the transcendent or an outward spirituality uh, wanting to make the world around them a better place. And when a person says, I'm spiritual but not religious, they're saying, I either want to connect with the transcendent or make the world a better place, and I'm not religious in that I don't see the major religions around me as a good vehicle for that kind of spirituality. And so one of the ways that you might want to, to challenge that as a Christian is to offer people a glimpse of what Christian spirituality really is when it's healthy and it's vibrant and it works. So one of the examples I give in my book is about a guy who takes mission trips to deprived areas for, for a week with, with a mix of people who are Christian and not Christian. And they, what they basically do is together practice an outward spirituality. Together, they reach out to these impoverished areas and they try to benefit them in physical ways like building houses and cleaning up the streets or whatever else has been suggested to them by the local churches as good things to do there. And as they engage together, Christians and non-Christians together in an outward spirituality, they begin to talk about what, well, actually, my outward spirituality flows from my upward spirituality, flows from my connection with God. And it's become a tremendous um, approach that, that a number of people use, actually, to introducing spiritual but not religious people to what it means to follow Jesus is to show them Christian spirituality in practice, feeding the poor, you know, caring for the homeless and the, uh, and the orphans and all that kind of stuff that we're told to do in scripture. Doing that with people who are not Christians, not just arguing for the Christian faith, but doing Christian spirituality together would be, is very persuasive and powerful to people who call themselves spiritual but not religious. Yes, you know, that's a great example. You need to really contextualize your message to the culture that you're in. I remember, you know, in China, I was speaking at a university and they said, okay, now it's dominated by atheists. And so you're going to have to come in there and make your presentation. So I gave a presentation on the evidence for the existence of God. It was just powerful, powerful yeah, yeah. presentation there. But then I went over to Eastern Europe. I think I was in Hungary and I was at a yeah. university there. And they said, okay, this is, they're atheists here. They grew up in communism and all. So you're going to have to really make a presentation for the case for God. I gave the same presentation and yeah. I didn't get the same response. You know, no. they, they, they kind of looked at me and said, well, you know, we've been through that. Tell us right. something new. And so what you're saying is absolutely right. Presenting it in the right context or understanding the context you're in. Yeah. No, I agree. And we feel the urgency, I think, of... Now, I write in my book about ways to engage atheists would be very different to that, but we feel the urgency of engaging atheists very much because they've got a high media profile, haven't they? But they're not by no means kind of the be-all and end-all of people outside the church in the West today. There's a whole range of other people who would have some vague kind of spirituality or who might call themselves Christian but have nothing to do with the church. And, and I guess what we want to retain the sort of thing you did in China, which is figuring out how to really give give good arguments for the existence of God. We kind of probably want to broaden our approach to, to be more relevant to other people too. Yes. Now, how do you learn the context or you know of the culture that you're in? Yeah, how do you learn the context? I think you have to spend time with people. Very much the temptation for those of us who would call ourselves apologists or have an interest in that area is to our first course of action is to think, what book can I read <laughs> about this that will help me understand the culture? I think spend time with people. So I quite appreciate Tim Keller's approach to advice 
to young pastors is to, you know, if you have 35 hours in a week or something like this, you know, spend 30 of them hanging out with people who live in the neighborhood, spend five hours preparing a sermon, and then on the Sunday, preach to the kinds of people you've been hanging out with during the week. And and I think if we spend time with people, get to know people around us, that's one great way to do it. Obviously, you can re- watch the movies people are watching, listen to the music people are listening to. You can... Uh, music's harder these days because it's so tribalized. There tend to be very few songs everyone's listening to, but you can you can read the history of the area and understand a bit about that. So there's all kinds of ways to, to do it. I, I think the art of just listening is great. So something that's benefited me greatly is just to, to think of some good questions to ask people, kind of go into a context and just conduct a few interviews, really, and not as a pretext for me to preach to them, but just to ask them, okay, what, what is your view of God? What Would you ever say you've had a spiritual experience? Do you think the Christian faith is intellectually tenable? Whatever kind of questions you might feel are appropriate for your context, come up with a short questionnaire, go around and find out what people are like and listen to their life experiences would be a good approach. Yes, I think you bring up a good point. We need to be good listeners to the ideas that dominate the culture and where people are at, Mm -hmm. wherever we're going to give the message. I think, yeah, listening and engaging people and not trying to preach at them all the time, I think is great in learning the context that we're in. Yeah, no, I think so. And figure out, I mean, if you want to learn, I mean, these aren't things I'm necessarily writing about in my books. And the book I outline, Understanding Three different groups, spiritual but not religious, atheists and nominal Christians. On each one I have a chapter of how to understand them, a chapter on each one of how to engage with their major questions, and a chapter on each one outlining practical strategies to reach them. So this isn't something I address in my book, but I would say, personally, finding people who I feel are doing effective ministry in a given context and spend time with them is helpful. So... Even if you, so for me in university ministry, I've kind of tried to identify the people who are really good at speaking to university audiences and making sure that at the very least I get to spend a day or two with them, seeing them do it in practice. And very quickly you pick up how that works. Yes. Now you state in your book that we must widen our apologetics. And you quote John Stackhouse, who said, anything that helps people take Christianity more seriously than they did before. Anything that helps yeah. defend and commend it properly counts as apologetics. Yeah. Explain that to us. Sure. So the key word there in Stackhouse's definition, anything that helps us take the Christian faith more seriously counts as apologetics. And, and I would define apologetics as answering the why question. Why should I put my faith in Christ? And so Stackhouse, for example, in his book, cites architecture as an example. He cites telling a good story as an example, like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis and the ways in which this profoundly communicates something of the gospel. He cites Christian community and the experience of prayer as, as things which can kind of persuade people of the reality of the Christian faith. So, yeah, I think it's kind of broadening it beyond what we normally think of as apologetics. It's, oh, let, let's come up with a set of logical and well-reasoned answers. And logical and well-reasoned answers are an important component, but we want to broaden it out and say, actually, what are the other things which might help reach people? What are the ways that, let's say, healing prayer? What are the ways in which community or just simple conversation might be 
adapted to have an impact on people. Yes, you know, I resonate with that. I Often we think, you know, here in America, we, you know, I use the analogy of baseball, that some, yeah. whenever we engage the unbeliever, we think we've got to hit that home run. You know, we've yeah. got to present the gospel and invite them to pray the prayer. When I tell them, no, sometimes evangelism is just getting them to first base. You know, right. It's helping them get one step closer in seriously considering Christ. So if you have someone that thinks Christianity is completely irrational and silly, mm-hmm. to get them to the point where they say, well, it's not. There, there's some good reasons for this. I mean, you've gotten them one step closer to Christ, so it's not always hitting that home run. Right, and it's not just rationality, T. I mean, one of the things I outline in the book is it's not just making the gospel plausible. But one example I tell is a story of a guy. He grew up in a non-religious family, vaguely Christian, in his teens, does a bit of reading, decides he's an atheist, and this becomes kind of his worldview. Becomes friends with a Christian who invites him to a church youth group during his late teens. Here's for the first time this story of God become man, um, giving his life for it. And he thinks this is beautiful. I like this. It's stupid. It's not true. But it's beautiful. At that point, so the first thing that he's feeling there is it's beautiful, it's desirable, it's something I want. And I think this is an important component for everyone. They have to feel not just it's true, but it's desirable. But it's not enough just that. So he kind of goes on for his teens, and he builds up a whole body of questions. Christianity is scientifically untenable, because suffering disproves God, the scriptural texts are corrupted. He's got this whole set of questions, and you think, okay, he finds it desirable, he finds it beautiful. All he needs is somebody just to come in and give him all the answers. And what's so interesting is that it's not people coming in giving him all the answers that kind of the clenching thing for him. It's a girl in the youth group says, come and eat with me and my family. And he goes around for the first time he spends time with a Christian family and he sees the set of relationships going on amongst people. He sees the way they talk to each other. He sees the way they talk about God and relationship with God. And for the first time for him, Christianity becomes real and tangible. And and so I kind of break it down like this. In the first instance, people, uh, whatever order it happens in, partly people need to see it's desirable, it's beautiful. Partly they need to see it's real and it's tangible. When he went in in that kind of Christian family context around the meal table, what he didn't encounter was an argument or information. What he encountered was Christianity put into practice and he could see what Christianity looked like and it was real enough for him to touch. And that then made him open to answers and he started raising over the dinner table some of these questions he had and was given books to read and eventually he became convinced okay it's plausible and it's true as well and I will open my life to Christ so it's three things it was desirable he was attracted to it it was tangible it felt real and it was plausible it seemed true because of the answers he'd had and I think my critique of contemporary apologetics is or those evangelists who lean towards apologetics is that we lean towards just the last one establishing that it's plausible and it's true and it can answer their difficult questions. But we need to do that thing also in conjunction with helping show people it's beautiful and desirable, creating context where they can see that it's real and it's alive and how it works in real life. Fantastic. You know, in your book, you state that there are three major groups of unbelievers in the West today. Yeah. Spiritual but not religious, the convinced atheist, and the nominal Christian. So give us a description first of the spiritual but not religious. Give us a description of this group. Sure. Well, as I mentioned to you, it, it's one of it's one of 
two ways that they that their spirituality is leaning. One is upwards towards the transcendent. One is outwards to make the world around them a better place. So when someone's spiritual, they either mean I want to connect with the transcendent. They either mean I want to make the world around me a better place, or they mean a bit of both. And when they say they're not religious, they mean whatever the major religious options are in our culture, probably in Christianity in the West. We're talking Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They're saying, okay, I, I don't think these things are the pathway to making the world a better place. I don't think these things help me connect with the transcendent. So that would be a spiritual, not religious person. Um, and in some sense, I guess the, the positive of it is they are yearning for spiritual reality. Um, the difficulty of it is that they're saying, but I don't think that's found in your religion. Yes. Now, you state there's several reasons sometimes why people would end up in this particular camp. What's often the background you find of people who say they're spiritual but not religious? It's a mix. The people I've, the, quite a number of people I've met and interviewed in preparation of a book would just didn't have any religious background, actually. So one, one story I tell there is of a, there's a woman who grew up really essentially agnostic, no religious background. And when she was about 30 years old, she had a, she was at her boyfriend's house and, and her boyfriend's mother was a kind of, kind of did these mystical healing massages and uh, kind of new age type thing and said, would you let me give you one of these massages? And she did. Halfway through the massage, she's, this is her description to me. It's like she felt herself suddenly transported in her to a completely different reality out of her body. This whole crazy other, other experience, like nothing she'd ever had. And, and then she kind of experienced all this stuff and then kind of felt herself return to her body and this strange, odd spiritual out-of-body experience ended and the massage ended. But she said after that, she knew that there was more to life than what was physical. And she had a sense, okay, there is something out there beyond what I've experienced until now. And the tendency of Christians is to think people who, have had, who are involved in what we might frame as alternate spiritualities are somehow anti-Christian. But the strange thing is, here you have a girl who's basically atheist functionally, a woman who's basically atheist, has this strange spiritual experience, and all of a sudden she realizes there's more to life than there is now. But she doesn't know anyone who's going to talk to her about Jesus. I think I was almost the first person to talk to her about Jesus. But she was open because this spiritual experience she'd had had made her open to the possibility of there being more to life than she'd experienced till now on the kind of, in the sense of connected to the transcendent or something beyond out there. So quite often, spiritual and religious people are not to be assumed as hostile or as our enemies, but actually they could be people kind of on a journey away from what you might phrase as kind of materialistic naturalism towards a sense of a possibility that there could be more to life than what we can see, touch, or measure. Tell us generally, how do we reach those who are spiritual but not religious? How do we effectively communicate and engage with this kind of community? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously it's going to depend on the individual. The first thing is, so on, a, on an individual level, when you have friends who are spiritual or religious, without being preachy about it, you might want to just be a little more open about your own spiritual experience. So you can speak of prayer or our spiritual experiences with people. People are interested about 
spiritual reality in your life. So just be prepared to tell people stories of things which have happened to you. Don't just say, and maybe even don't just say, I'll pray for you sometime, but maybe even offer to pray for them then. I think anything you can do to, I describe it as like, let's say someone who's never never drunk Coca-Cola before, you've got a bottle of Coca-Cola and you say, okay, I'm going to describe to you Coca-Cola, I'm going to argue for you what the taste of Coca-Cola is, that you'll enjoy this, this is positive, or so far you can go in arguing for it and describing it. There's some point where you're going to want to pour them a glass of Coke and give them a sip to drink. And can you give people an experience of Christian spirituality? As I mentioned earlier, that might be the Christian spirituality of kind of being on mission with God in the world in terms of helping the broken and that downtrodden places of our world and inviting people into that aspect of Christian mission? Is it giving them a context where they can experience Christians to kind of have the opportunity to pray with people or have the opportunity to kind of experience people listening to God and hearing God speak to them? Whatever it is, putting them in in a context where they can kind of have an experience... for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this exciting show. We hope you enjoyed this interview. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, State Farm Agent Sue Ann Liu. For all your insurance needs, home, auto, or life, contact Sue Ann Liu at sueannliu.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.